0: Hidden Gems, Episode 6, T for 2. Welcome to Hidden Gems, a board game podcast where we review unusual, forgotten, and underappreciated
1: board games. We're your hosts. My name is Chris. And I'm Jason. Thanks for listening to our show. (laughs) We didn't have Cameron to do that this time.
0: (laughs) Did that sound like him? Close. Yeah, yeah going to be a little bit different today folks i think you probably knew this if you listened to our last episode but cameron is away on his honeymoon vacation
1: having more fun than we are
0: having way more fun than we are i've heard from him a couple of times and it sounds like he's having a blast right now i'm sure he would much rather be there than here but we're missing him right now it feels weird it really does
1: Yep. You're going to get treated to our best attempts at doing flavor text.
0: <laughs> That's all right. I'm scared already. Yeah, I was going to say, you definitely got the best draw of the three. Yeah, I cannot wait. I actually get to play it pretty safe today, but you're going to have to put yourself out there a little bit. I'm expecting a big performance out of you today.
1: <laughs> we'll see how it goes. So as we've been doing the past couple episodes, we always try to pair our theme of the episode with a cocktail. So what do we got tonight?
0: Yeah, so the title for this week is Tea for Two, and the reason I did that obviously is we're talking about two-player games today because it's just Jason and I, and one of the games that we're going to be talking about today, Matcha, is a tea-themed board game, so I thought I would do a tea-themed cocktail, and this one was a pretty easy one for me because there's one particular drink that I like a lot that has tea in it that always reminds me of spring. It's beautiful right now in North Carolina. Flowers are blooming starting to warm up it's really nice the pollen's gone pollen is finally gone finally. the yellow dust clouds have more or less passed
1: if you're not familiar with north carolina weather the pollen just gets unbearable for about two weeks until it, the rain hits it's unreal it's, you can just see clouds of yellow oh yeah down the street it's it's unbelievable when it
0: rains hard my driveway is kind of sloped towards my house it is literally a yellow river running down the driveway towards our garage from this pollen that's just washing down the drive. it's disgusting it's gross but at any rate it's beautiful right now so all that to say this weather makes me think of the arnold palmer so arnold palmer is not necessarily an alcoholic drink but arnold palmer is a mixture of tea and if you live here in the south like we do in north carolina it's sweet tea and lemonade in various different combinations
1: i expected matcha tea (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, nope, No no, no matcha tea. We're going with sweet tea this time. And it can be in various different proportions, uh, however you want to make it. Made famous by the golfer Arnold Palmer, who's kind of credited as inventing this concoction. So vodka comes in a lot of different flavors. It has a lot of different infusions, and there's actually a sweet tea vodka. Ah. Okay. So this drink is super simple. All right. So all you have to do is mix sweet tea vodka with lemonade. In whatever proportion you want, or however strong you want the drink to be. I typically do it one part vodka to two or three parts lemonade. That's usually a pretty good balance. But it's a refreshing drink. It's good for this kind of weather, for sure. Arnold Palmer cocktail. It fits. Yeah. All right, so obviously we're here to talk about board games. We're board game reviewers now. But we do like (laughs) to talk. I guess, right? It still feels weird. But we do like to talk about other things that we enjoy. And I I really enjoy these first 15 to 20 minute banter sections that we do on the podcast. I hope that the listeners enjoy them. They seem to. And it's kind of fun to talk about other things, you know, other things that we like, other things that we enjoy, other things that we're into. And Jason and I, in particular, in our friendship over the years, have always kind of had this relationship where we bounce things off of each other. You know, Jason will send me a text and be like, "Hey, have you heard of this show or have you heard of this video game?" and I'll be like, "Hey, have you read this book or have you read this graphic novel or whatever?" It's just something that we do, right? Yeah. And I think despite our best efforts, we like to say that we're not hipsters, quote unquote, but <laughs> we always just seem to be attracted to the more lesser known stuff, which is why we get excited about it and share it with each other. So. Which is why we,
1: why we do this podcast. <laughs> exactly,
0: exactly. It's just in us, right? We, we, we're just drawn to these things that not everybody knows about. So we thought we would talk about a couple of things today that uh, we really enjoy. One of them being, at least for me, comics and graphic novels, which you've actually started getting into a lot more over the last year or two, I would say.
1: Yeah, so we went up to Origins, mm-hmm. whenever that was, when, before the pandemic, yep. and I purchased Watchmen. There, and I had never read it before, never seen the movie, and enjoyed reading through that, but first time I'd ever read a graphic novel in my life, so now that you've started collecting these masterpiece versions of the of them and been passing them off to me, I've been trying them out more.
0: Yeah, and I've been really glad to be getting into it, because I love sharing them with people. So I've always been a comic book collector, even since I was a small child, probably seven or eight years old. My older cousin, Robbie, had a pretty big comic book collection. And when he got out of high school, because he was a good bit older than me, he gave them to me. And it had a lot of really cool stuff in it, like the old um, Amazing Spider-Man stuff, like runs from the late 80s and the early 90s, stuff like that. A lot of X-Men stuff in there, a good bit of DC and Batman in there. And so I've always had a love for comic books. It's waxed and waned over the years, but I've definitely gotten more into it over the last probably three to four years, because I had decided that I was going to attempt to read modern age batman in chronological order which is a fool's errand
1: <laughs> i don't even fully know what that means but.
0: <laughs> yeah and i'm not gonna go into it that's a whole <laughs> other talk in and of itself that we can have later but i have gotten into it more so one graphic novel that i just recently got is a graphic novel by the name of berserk i got it for my birthday it's written by kentaro miura and one thing before we start talking about this i just want to make a quick statement two things actually this is a very mature book, okay?
1: Very. very. <laughs>
0: it's not for kids. We're not going to go into all the reasons why. If you want to know more about that, you can look online and see what that entails. But it's for adult readers. It's very intense. And it's a manga. So what that means is that it's in black and white, as most mangas are, no color. And it reads right to left, Okay.
1: Took me a while to get used to that. <laughs>
0: yeah. Not only do you flip the pages right to left, but you read the panels right to left.
1: You read the bubbles in the panels yes. from right to left, which yes. threw me off.
0: Yeah. It's a it's a bit odd in that way. So Berserk just very briefly highlights the journeys of somebody known as the Black Swordsman. His name is Guts. And, <laughs> Great name. Yeah. He's a demon hunter. Okay. And that's just all I'll say about it right now. Because like I said, this isn't a comic book review show. But I'm just curious... What do you think about this graphic novel, Jason? How did you like it?
1: Yeah, I think I'm learning the world of graphic novels a little bit. We might talk about it on a different show, but I've read parts of Sandman because no, yeah. you, you passed it off to me. They're interesting. I think I'm getting used to the style. It seems like especially Sandman, and I, I might make some enemies by saying this, but it seems like there's not really much of a plot. It's, ah. just, kinda, it's just kind of like bouncing around to these <laughs> random vignettes and, and little stories. Yeah, It's interesting for sure, and yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll probably read through the rest of it. Berserk is a little different in that it seems like there's an ongoing storyline. For sure. I've only read the first volume so far, and it took a pretty long time to get to anything that actually resembled a story. <laughs> like, yeah. the, the whole first two-thirds of it is just him going berserk, really, <laughs> on on a, on a bunch of people. And so towards the end, it's like, okay, maybe there is actually a story here. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to read a little bit more of it. But yeah, it takes a little bit of getting used to.
0: Yeah, I think you made some good points. This is definitely an appropriately named book, okay? <laughs> this book is super violent. He, he definitely does go berserk. but
1: Just chopping people in half. It,
0: and- yeah, yeah, it's wild. But I, I will say, I, I think you do make a good point. I don't think you read Berserk to learn anything about yourself or try to understand something about the world or what he's trying to tell you. Like you might in Sandman, you know. For example, Neil Gaiman is a good writer, and he does cover some really philosophical ideas. He thinks at a very high level. Mm-hmm. Berserk is just, the opposite of that.
1: <laughs> just pure entertainment. It's
0: pure entertainment. You're just reading this book, and you're along for the ride. You know, it. it it's just a fun story which has its
1: place right i read classic novels right in my spare time and have read a lot of them and so i i tend to read the opposite of berserk right but (laughs) but it doesn't mean i don't enjoy it yeah yeah i'm definitely interested to read more of it and see where it goes
0: yeah for me personally berserk its entertainment value is through the roof for me and i think this is going to be really dependent on the person how much you will enjoy it, but I really love it. One thing that Berserk does really well that I wanted to mention, so there's something in comic books known as splash pages or splash panels. Do you know what I mean when I say that?
1: I don't specifically. I'm guessing it means like the full double page That's correct. Yeah. drawings, right?
0: So that's a practice used in, in comics where they try to portray a really incredible moment in the story by covering it in either an entire page or both pages side by side. Berserk has some of the coolest splash pages I've ever seen in a graphic novel or comic book ever. The only artist I can think that even comes close is Tim Sale, who does a lot of stuff with Batman, like Dark Victory and The Long Halloween. Those two graphic novels have amazing splash panels. And this one is a close second. I mean, there were a few times I flipped the page and my jaw just dropped. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to process, like, what. Am I even seen here? You know what I mean?
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah, I will say in graphic novels in general, I think it's cool to see how they can turn cinematic conventions into drawings. Yes. It's amazing how they are able to piece together the drawings in such a way that it's almost like you're watching a movie. Right. Um, Absolutely. Watchmen in particular, I think, does some really cool stuff with the way that it interweaves different stories and, mm-hmm. and uses the the setup of the panels and all that to really tell the story in a unique way. Yeah, for sure.
0: Alan Moore of Watchmen is an awesome writer. If you haven't read Watchmen, I would recommend it as well. It's a really awesome book. So yeah, so that's Berserk, you know, just thought you might like to hear about it. We're enjoying it right now. At least I'm enjoying it quite a bit. I would say if you're not sure, if you like kingdom death monster, the board game never played it okay kingdom death monster reminds me a lot of berserk that should clue you in really quickly on what kind of book this is if you like kingdom death monster okay 300 it reminds me of a lot just in its over-the-top action
1: also never seen it (laughs) what (laughs) sadly seen or read nope oh
0: my gosh man okay well we'll address that later
1: is that a graphic novel
0: yes frank miller
1: okay you know who that is don't know don't answer that <laughs> i'm showing i'm showing my lack of geekiness You're in certain killing
0: areas me here. softly right now okay so yeah we'll 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 get there but at any rate berserk it's pretty good check it out
1: cool so given that we're taking on two-player games today i felt like it might be a good idea for us to just chat about two-player games in general for a second maybe talk about some of the games that we enjoy playing two-player whether they're hidden gems or not so What are some of the two-player games that you have played the most or enjoyed the most?
0: Yeah, so two-player games, before I answer that question, I'll say a little bit about them. Two-player games for me are very weird. I think in theory, I should like two-player games more than I do. I'm not saying I dislike them. That's not a good way to say it. I don't play two-player games as much as I play three, four, or five-player games. Yep. And I actually sat you know, today and tried to think, why is that? Why do I not play them? I always try to gravitate towards games with more people. And I think I came to the conclusion that it was for two reasons. One, I just like being around more people. Sure. I enjoy being at a table with more than one other person. It's just more fun. There's more energy because there's more people. It's nothing against the person you're playing as you play a two player game with, but it's a different experience, right? Right. I would say the other thing for me, and this is a stupid thing, but if I'm going to be honest with myself, In a two-player game, they exhaust me, because I always do feel a lot of tension, because when you lose a three- or a four-player game, you're not the only loser. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So you're like, well, I lost, but Ben lost too, so that makes me feel better. I don't really (laughs) care. But in a two-player game, you're the only loser. It stings even more a little bit, because you're like, oh, gosh, you know? He just bested me. So I think I have to be in the mood to play two-player games, because I really get into them when i play them
1: well two-player games tend to be a lot more confrontational too i think because they're just built to be that push-pull between two players whereas a lot of multiplayer games are more like solitaire games yeah doing um, your own thing where you're just doing your own thing and if you do that better than everybody else then great you win but you still feel like you accomplished something you built something you did something even if you don't win the game in a two-player game it's all or nothing (laughs) (laughs) right and so you're gonna have that higher degree of confrontation so what are some that you do play a good bit when, when you do get the chance?
0: So I, I'll say the two that I think that I've played the most over my time as a board gamer. And those would be, and this one of these will probably overlap with you. One of them is Sekigahara. Oh, the, fantastic game. The Unification of Japan. It's a block war game by GMT. And then the other one you haven't played, I don't think, which you've been asking me over many years and we just haven't. Do you know which one I'm talking about?
1: Memoir 44. Memoir
0: 44. That's exactly right. Yeah, so Memoir 44 is an awesome game. Commands and Colors systems. There's a lot of these games. Commands and Colors ancients and Napoleonics. I just love that system. From a war game standpoint, quote unquote, they're very light for sure. But they're enjoyable. They're just fun. And with Memoir 44, it's just fun to push your little plastic tanks around board push your units around the board. You're firing on different units. It's just fun. And for a while, I was playing this game pretty regularly with Matt Viol, who came over here all the time. We played it together, and then he's since moved away to Washington, D.C. tier, and then kind of died there. But I would love to get back into it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Seki is an overlap for sure for mm-hmm. me. I think that's by far my favorite two-player game. It's intense. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a longer... I wouldn't say it's more complicated. There's not a ton of rules... Uh, but it's, it's about the
0: simplest block war game you can play that doesn't mean it's easy but it's not heavy rules wise
1: yeah extreme <clears throat> amount of strategy really fun i think others that i've played more recently shobu I, I no you, i haven't i've seen you play it's it. like a chess like abstract but it feels like a much older game it feels like a classic older ancient type game mm. but it's pretty modern war chest is another one that i've played a good bit you um, have that i do i've only played it with gavin huh I didn't, My son, I, I didn't but,
0: realize you had that. Yeah. I'm not. I'd be interested.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty good one. It's
0: definitely not a hidden gem. But no, no,
1: for sure. And it's on the lighter end. But, but it plays quickly. It's pretty fun to figure out. All right,
0: yeah. So that's our thoughts preliminarily on two-player games. Let's get into some of our reviews, yeah? <laughs> Let's do it.
1: Infamous dockside bars of Shanghai can get rough. More than one sailor wandered in for nothing more than a quick drink, only to wake up head-pounding in the cabin of a trap steamer. And so this recruitment method, favored by unscrupulous captains, came to be known as being Shanghai. The notorious Captain Ramon El Dado and Terrible Michael are fighting over who will put together the best crew. They have all agreed to roll dice for them, while thinking nothing of using dirty tricks to get ahead. <laughs> that was my best attempt.
0: That was pretty good. I, I think you should keep it.
1: Take that, Cameron. <laughs> you stayed in character the whole time. <laughs> I tried. That's <laughs> <It was> good. <laughs> Alright. Shanghain. Published in 2008 by Abacus Spiel. Designed by Roman Pelek and Michael Schacht. Currently ranked on BGG, 2,697. I actually did a little bit of research into this term being Shanghai'd yeah. and, wh- and what that means. I've heard the term and I, I knew what it meant, Me but I, I was kind of interested about where the term came from and some of the history around it. I, I
0: actually didn't know what it meant. Yeah, so, I've always heard it, but I, I don't really know what it means.
1: Yeah. So to be Shanghai'd, I guess was a practice in the 1800s, I guess, where to be able to complete the crew for a ship that was going to sea, if they couldn't find enough able-bodied, willing people to, to be on the ship, <laughs> they would find less scrupulous ways of getting people aboard these ships, sometimes involving trickery or blackmail, other types of shadiness <laughs> to get right, folks right. To, to get on the ships. And then once they're on the ship, obviously you're at sea. There's nowhere not, to go now. How much you can do about it. Yep. Uh, so this came to be known as being shanghai which I always thought had to do with the city of Shanghai and it being something that maybe happened in Shanghai. It actually turns out that the term came because a lot of times the boats that people were being coerced onto were destined for Shanghai. Ah, okay. But it actually happened, at least based on my five minutes worth of internet research, that this happened a lot more often in in the U.S. Hmm. uh, than anywhere else. Mainly San Francisco and New York is where a lot of this activity happened and portland were big locations for it i did look up one i guess there's one famous shanghaier or crimper as what they were known who history would say managed to shanghai more than a hundred men in a single night whoa and the way he did it and this, this is fascinating <laughs> so he told all of these men that he, that he was throwing a, a booze cruise basically a, a party <laughs> and loaded all these guys onto the ship sailed them out to sea and then passed them off to all the captains once they were out at sea and then in order to make sure that it just didn't raise suspicions when he got back into port with his crews and there was nobody left aboard it actually turned out that there was a shipwreck or a ship that got into trouble on his way back so he rescued all the people from that ship brought <laughs> them onto his ship and sailed it back in as the crews, and nobody knew the difference you got to be kidding That's what Wikipedia says. That's Well, it must be true then. It must be. (laughs) That's wild. So let's talk a little bit about the rules to Shanghai. In this game, you are trying to capture pirates represented by cards. There are five cards in each of eight different colors. These cards have numbers on them between one and four. So there's five cards. There's a one, a two, two threes, and a four. There'll be eight rounds played. And in each round, six cards will get dealt out into a line. And on a player's turn, they have two options. It's real simple. You can either roll two dice and place one of those dice out in front of a card, or you call Shanghai and the round ends. And you can call Shanghai as long as you've played at least two dice out onto the board. The cards in a line represent the numbers 1 through 6. So, depending on who places the first die in front of one of those cards determines whether those go left to right or right to left. So, after a dice has been placed and that numbering has been determined, then from that point on, whenever you place a die, you have to place it in front of the card that represents that number. A round ends whenever it either comes to a player's turn and they only have one of their six die left, or when a player calls Shanghai. Yep. So, at the end of a round, each of the six cards that's on the table is going to get claimed by one player or the other. Or it might get discarded, depending on what happens with the dice placements. So how this works is, if a card has neither player's die in front of it, that card gets discarded. If a card only has one player's die next to it, that player gets that card. If both players have dice in front of a card, then whoever has more dice in front of the card gets the card. Mm -hmm. Finally, if both players have the same number of dice, then you're going to look at the die on the cards to either side of that card, add up the pips on those die, and whoever has the stronger pip count wins the card if that's still tied then n- nobody gets the card and it's right. discarded yet again that's really most of the game right there yeah the, the game ends after eight rounds once you've gone through all of the cards at the end of the game if only one player has cards of a particular color then each of those cards the the number value on that card will count towards that player's points right however if both players have cards of the same color then Adding up the numbers on those cards, whoever has the higher value is going to steal the other player's cards but has to discard their own cards, which is what makes it interesting. At that point, you add up the points on all of your cards and whoever has the most points is the winner. One other little wrinkle in here is that there are eight special cards that can come out throughout the course of the game. These cards have two different special abilities on them and you get your choice of either of the two special abilities. And they have... Pretty simple abilities like re-roll both of your dice if you don't like your roll. Or add or subtract one from the value of a die before you place it. So that's about it. Yep. All right. If you were listening to the rules, you noticed that I talked about rolling dice in this game. And we certainly don't hate randomness here at Hidden Gems. But, you know, it can be polarizing in terms Mm -hmm. of how randomness affects a game. And I think it's essential in a lot of games to add in that degree of uncertainty. But it can go too far. I'm curious your thoughts on the, the dice rolling and the randomness element for this game.
0: Yeah, it's a good question. It's a good place to start in discussing this game. So I certainly don't mind dice rolling. I enjoy a dice checker. I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of those if I feel like that I have some control and agency in the game. In this particular game, you're rolling two dice and you're assigning one of them. And unless you have a special card... There are no rerolls, So I will say right off the bat that that's one thing that bugged me a little bit about this game is I did feel like I did struggle with control at times, even though the special cards can help you because you're just so limited in your options. Again, you're rolling two D6s, and then you choose one of those and you assign it. Take a game like King of Tokyo, for example, which is also very light and I enjoy. But what makes King of Tokyo, I think so popular, is it's a dice roller, but you have control, right? Yep. You're rolling several, at least six, sometimes more, if you can get certain cards. And then you can re-roll, and then you can re-roll again, and you can re-roll some that you kept the first time. You've got more options. Whereas in this game, you're very limited in what you're able to do. Most of the time, you just roll it, and you're like, okay, these are my options. This is where I have to go.
1: Yeah, and it's not even that. It's not like the die roll determines your strength to be able to fight in a battle or something. It literally determines where the dice has to go. Right. right? What you can get. Right. Yeah.
0: I struggled with that at times, for sure, because it always felt like I had a hard time planning for anything because you can't really plan for anything. You really can't solidly plan for anything in a dice game, but in this game, especially. I did feel like I was at the mercy of the die rolls a little bit more than I would have liked.
1: Yeah, I think you can you can plan each round in terms of well, I know what I should be going for. Whether or not I actually can or not right. is going to be highly dependent on the die rolls. Right. I will say I agree with you. I do think that the special cards can help with that a good bit. Yeah. I think at least in like the first game that we played. I think I took all the special cards yep. and I don't think you got any of them. But again, that's kind of dependent on when the special cards come out onto the board, right? Right. They, there might not be any special cards in the first few rounds or in the, the right. later couple of rounds, right?
0: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up too about taking the special cards and how I didn't very much the first game. I think there is an interesting choice to be had here. If I have a role where one of the die lets me take a crew member and the other die lets me take a special card, which one should I take? Because it is tempting... To just take crew members, right? Because if you have a lot of crew members, you're likely to have a lot of strength and likely to win a lot of majorities to be able to score that particular type of crew, that color of pirate. So it's tempting to want to take that, but I did find in our plays of this towards the end of the game when I really had to win a certain kind of pirate. Mm -hmm. You know, like there was that one red pirate and I'm like, if I can get that last red pirate, I have all the red pirates, I'm going to score a ton of points. Yep, but I had no special cards to enable me to increase my odds to do that, and I was really missing them in that moment. And so I think it does introduce some good choice into the game of maybe it's worth it to take this card to use later
1: at a really opportune moment. Sure. Yeah, I think this game definitely has an arc. Right mm-hmm. at the beginning, you're just kind of trying to get cards, right? Because right. you don't know what that end game scoring is going to turn out to be, right? And this is one of the things that I liked about it is that as the game progresses, you get more and more information about what you need to try to be doing. Because you might start to see, oh, well, he's stacking up on green cards. Now, if I can get one green card and basically negate all of those points, then that becomes really important. Or maybe it's, I have all the green cards and I know that there's one more out there that's going to come up at some point and I need to be prepared to defend it. I've got to get it. I've got to get it. I think how that develops throughout the course of the game is really interesting. And so I do think that is where planning ahead for that, knowing that that's coming can be important. Yeah.
0: I think that really segues into another thing that I actually did like about this game a lot, and it probably is my favorite aspect of the game, when to call Shanghai. Yep. Because you can call Shanghai pretty early. Once you've got two of your dice down, you can call it. So you may be thinking, wouldn't it be better to get all of your dice down and try to get as many cards as possible? Well, yes, maybe, but if at the end of the game... I have two dice down, and I've got all the red pirates, but one in my last die is already on a red pirate. It's a no-brainer, right, that I'm yeah. calling Shanghai. I'm not even going to give you the chance to tie me up or right. try to take it away from me. And so you do have some control there when you can end the round.
1: Yeah. It is a, a bit of a push your luck, right, because... On the flip side of that, if I haven't been able to place a die in front of something that I know I really need, it's like, well, do I give my opponent the opportunity to place another die and get maybe something else that they need right in order to try to get it or do I just end it now? Right, and, right. You know, and let it go. That that offense, defense, push and pull yep. is is really interesting.
0: It is, yeah. There's always that fear of, man, if I roll again, am I going to regret this? Because he's going to roll something that I needed and take it from me. I will say for me, transitioning into the cons, one thing that I guess worried me a little bit too, other than just being at the mercy of the dice rolls a lot of times, is the game could feel a little bit samey. It's a short game and it's a simple game, so I'm not going to ding it too hard for this, but literally on your turn, you're rolling two dice and you're placing one of them. I mean, it's very simple, right? You're just doing the same thing every time. The decision space is not immense here. <laughs> right. Like on the box, I think it says 8+. And I think that's probably appropriate. I don't think that an 8-year-old is going to grasp all the deeper strategies, I guess, as deep as it can go in a game like this. But there are some things to think about. Mm-hmm. But it's very simple, right? Roll a dice, place. Roll a dice, place. You know. Yeah, and... I think lastly, before we transition into our final thoughts, one thing that we both agreed on that we want to mention. So this game was published in 2008. Okay? Yep. And the world has changed a lot in the last 13 years. And I think it's worth mentioning, this game could be perceived as a little bit racially insensitive and a little bit on the
1: nose from a
0: racial standpoint.
1: Yeah. Each of the eight colors from the rulebook is... Supposed to represent a particular nationality. And so the artwork reflects that in, I would say, a pretty stereotypical fashion. Oh, yeah.
0: That's that's what I mean by on the nose. I think the Italian pirate is wearing
1: a Ferrari racing shirt. I mean, (laughs) right? (laughs) you know, I mean, it's just... It's meant to be humorous, but it definitely goes a little too far in places. I
0: mean, honestly, what this game reminded me of, it's like Mike Tyson's Punch Out the board game. It's just very racially stereotypical, so... We say that in all seriousness, that if that kind of thing would be a barrier for you to even bring this to a game group, then you should know about it on the front end. So I think that we felt the need to mention that because it's definitely noticeable.
1: For sure. I think games like this can definitely be enjoyed for what they are while not condoning the stereotypes that are present in them. However, I think it's something to be aware of if it is a game that you want to try to seek out. And it's something that hopefully if this game were to be reprinted in the future would would be addressed. Oh
0: yeah. That should easily be fixed.
1: All right. want to go into our final thoughts, Jason. Sure. So kick us off. Yeah. So I thought for the amount of time that it takes to play this and for the simplicity of it, I enjoyed this game. I think that it has a good push pull offense, defense, mechanic going on it's fast i gave this game a four i think it's a good game it's not hall of fame for me by any means but i enjoyed my plays of it
0: okay yeah for me i'm gonna steal a line out of your book here jason i was on the fence on this one <laughs> that's usually your line it, it is i bounced back and forth in my mind on this one between a three and a four because as i mentioned in our review i think hopefully it came across that i do think this game has some merits it does have some decent decisions. However, after playing it a few times, I did feel like on most rolls, I was just thinking, please, Lord, just be what I want. You know, I always felt like more than me controlling it to a certain extent or increasing my odds, I was just hoping, you know, please be this, please be this number, please roll it. And, you know, when it's not coming up a lot for you, that can be frustrating. Sure. Sure now I say all that noting again that this game has 8 years old and up on the box and this is a super serious game I'm not trying to gamify it and make it like a Euro game or anything but again for me personally if I'm going to enjoy a game I shouldn't feel frustrated and sometimes it aggravated me where there was like that one card I had to have and I couldn't get it just because I couldn't roll it you know or actually I think in one of our games there was one pirate we were rolling over and I rolled it and then you matched me and I rolled it again I was like yes and then you matched me again, and then I rolled it again, and then you matched me again.
1: I mean, what are the chances of that, right? See, I think those are the fun Those are the fun moments of this game. Right? Uh,
0: that wasn't fun for me. <laughs> it can be frustrating. No, it was. It was just like, I, when I needed that control, I just couldn't, you know, it, it was a dice game. So I'm going on and on here, but all I have to say, I ultimately landed on a three for this one. Fully understanding why people like yourself could enjoy it more and i definitely think it has a place i could see why people would like it it's a lighthearted, fun dice roller but for me personally
1: this just lands on a three i respect that so if this game does sound interesting to you and you would like to try to seek it out the bad news is that it is very out of print at this point but there are copies available of it on bgg mm-hmm. 15 as of the last time that we checked and that's all i have, that's all I have to say <laughs> 15 copies that's it yeah. All right, so I think that's a wrap on
0: Shanghai. The Japanese tea ceremony is a tradition centered on spirituality and servitude. Preparing and presenting a beautiful matcha for your guest is the ultimate expression of culture Ceremony and respect In matcha Players attempt to collect the utensils they need To perform a tea ceremony By matching cards on the table By their number or suit Cards are played secretly And sometimes It will be to your advantage Not to match at all Block and bluff To brew the best matcha possible
1: Nice (laughs) Do you feel relaxed? (laughs) I do I hate tea. Not as good as my pirate voice. But... <laughs> no, it wasn't. I mean,
0: you had better material. Not fair. <laughs> Doing the best I can over here. All right. Matcha. Published in 2015 by Grill Games. However, most recently reprinted by Matigo. At the time of this recording, its ranking is 4,412 on the BGG rankings. Designer of this game is David Harding. Who is also the designer of Eleven Z's, which I have not played. Have you played this game? Nope. No? heard of it? Yeah, yeah, me too. I know about it. I've not played it. And that's really his only notable other design. So I heard about this game from Tom Vassell. So Tom Vassell, probably like six or seven years ago, when Grail Games reprinted this game, did a review of it, and he gave a very glowing review of this game. Okay, so at that time. He gave the game an 8.5 out of 10, which is a Dice Tower Seal of Excellence. And I can tell you that they do not give these out willy-nilly, okay? The game has to be very excellent for them to hand out this award. He thought very highly of it, so it got my attention. I got in on this game in the Kickstarter and backed it because the gameplay sounded interesting. So that's how I heard about it. Okay, rules. I'm going to do my best here. A tricky one, it is, and I apologize on the front end if this doesn't make sense. This game is very opaque, and I think that that's why this game is going to be very hard to review. But we're going to do our best, and I'm going to explain the rules in their entirety. Otherwise, this review is going to make no sense to you. Luckily, it's a quick game. This is a micro game. So, in matcha, what you're trying to do is you're trying to brew tea. The way that you win the game is by collecting utensils. So, you've got water, you've got a bowl, you've got a leaf. You've got a whisk and you've got a spoon. If you're able to collect all five of those utensils, you win the game at the end of that round that you do that. Alternatively, if you're able to collect four of any one of those things. So, for example, if I collect four bowls, I will win the game at the end of the round in which I have done that. Okay. So those are ways that you can win the game. There are 18 cards in this game. 16 of the 18 cards are split up into four different suits. You've got the leaf, the bowl, the water, and the spoon. Each suit is of four different strengths, numbered one through four. So again, four suits, each of four cards numbered one to four, that's your 16 cards. In addition to those 16 cards, you have two zero cards, so 18 cards in total. The way the game is set up is there will be a display in the center of the table, where you're going to have six cards face-up that are split into three different groupings of two cards. And you're trying to match those cards in order to get utensils or ingredients. The way that it works is one of the cards you try to match by the suit, the other card you're trying to match by the number. So for example, for the suit card, let's say that it's a leaf showing. If on your turn you are able to play a leaf card from your hand that is of a higher rank then your opponent, you get a leaf component, okay? For the number, let's say it's a number three showing, a three of the red bowls. If you are able to play a three card from your hand that is of a higher rank than your opponent, you will win the bowl, whatever your card you're trying to match. The way the numbers works is the suits are ranked. So a leaf is stronger than a bowl, which is stronger than water, which is stronger than a spoon, but then it loops back around with a spoon beating a leaf. So it's kind of like a loop in strength. The numbers work the same way. One would beat a four, for example. So what happens if you match and your opponent does not match? If they play a card to the table that is not an attempt to match. So for example, we're trying to match leaves, and I play a leaf and I win, but they play a spoon. They will get a whisk. That's how you acquire whisks. The only way to get whisk the only way by in by I was gonna say intentionally, but that's a bad word. <laughs> you'll see that word used intentionally not matching, but that's a bad word, and I'll explain why in a minute if you don't match or can't match and your opponent does match, you'll get a whisk, okay if both of you don't match, then nobody gets anything. It's just a wash like I said that's generally how the game is played. So you'll continue on like that until somebody satisfies the victory conditions, and then the game will be over at the end of that round. That's pretty much it. So I wanted to just briefly, before we get started in this review, you know, I like for our reviews to be very joking and lighthearted and be a little bit fun and maybe this one will be, but this one will probably be a little bit different because we're going to be a little rough on this game and not unfairly so because we're just going to come out and say it right off the top, we have issues with this game, both of us. And not in that we think it's bad, like we just didn't like it. We think this game has problems. It's got flaws, serious flaws. Yep. So we're going to try to do it very professionally. And one big reason for that is that this game has been reviewed very highly, like I said, by Tom Vassell and others. And I respect Tom a lot. So I'm not trying to suggest or imply that Tom Vassell is not a good reviewer. I think he's a fantastic reviewer. But we're going to disagree with him here, and that's okay. Uh, I think we have to do that. So, all that being said, all that introductory stuff out of the way, Jason, what? were some of your grievances with this game what were some of the issues that you found in playing matcha
1: yeah i think the biggest thing i mean we played this game a number of times because mm-hmm. we wanted to be careful with this review and, and we're not sure initially you know if it was something that we were just doing wrong or if it was the game itself and we played this a number of times we even played multiple rounds of this game just cards open yep trying to figure out okay well is there a different way that we could have played you know that we're just missing right And I think in all of those plays, we came to the conclusion that the game really plays you more than you play it. On the surface, it sounds really interesting, right? It sounds like, oh, I can bluff. I can maybe try not to match or try to match when I know my opponent isn't going to match. And there's this unknown of... I'm going to bluff here and maybe they'll think I'm trying to match, but I'm really not. Or I can just try to intentionally not match so that, you know, it cancels out their attempt to not match mm-hmm. and get a whisk. But I think ultimately all of that boils down to a puzzle that is solvable. Right. And that's the main criticism that we've come out with is that it seems like as long as you understand the game and it is opaque, it's hard to understand the first couple times you play through it like okay well, what am I actually trying to do and keeping track of oh I'm trying to match suit here and I'm trying to match number here and but ultimately it seemed like it was a solvable puzzle definitely
0: yeah I totally agree I think that once you've learned this game and you understand it which again takes some time because it's a weird one if you don't make errors if you and your opponent play it perfectly which you absolutely can do Once you get comfortable with the game and you understand how it works, it is very possible and very easy, once you've learned it, to play optimally every time. And at that point, the winner is determined by the deal. And that's really the biggest issue I have with it, is you have no agency in this game whatsoever. Nothing that you do controls the victor in this game, if you're both playing optimally, other than how the cards come out, and the luck of the draw will determine the winner. So let's explain in a little bit more detail why. How did we come to this conclusion? So as I said, this is an 18-card deck, but at the beginning of the game, two of the cards are removed. So there's a little bit of an unknown element to the game. A, a little, little bit. little.
1: The only cards you don't know are those two cards and the five cards in your opponent's hand.
0: Correct. So you see six cards face up on the table. You see five cards in your hand, And then there are five cards unaccounted for in your opponent's hand and then face down, okay? Again, only two cards removed that nobody sees. I think that's very important. So let's say that we're going for a leaf. Let's just take the simplest example. I think we have to go through this example so people understand what we're talking about. Sure. Let's say the four leaf is down on the table and the one leaf is down on the table, So the 2 and the 3 of the Leaf are unaccounted for. If you're holding the 3, you know that you have a winner.
1: Yep. Nothing can beat you.
0: Nothing can beat you, right? There's nothing that your opponent can do to stop you. And you should know that because when you look at the cards, you can see I'm a winner, okay? So let's say you're not sure that you have a winner. And this is the biggest issue that I have with this game. So let's say the 1 and the 4 of Leaf are out. And you're holding the two, but the three is not accounted for. What do you do in this situation? Well, if you're smart, (laughs) and I I say this unarrogantly, but I mean, this just makes sense. Yeah. You should assume that your partner is holding it.
1: Statistically, they do. Correct. And even if they don't, you're better off assuming that they do.
0: Absolutely. There's a greater than 70% chance that they are holding that card. If you try to win that, playing the two and they're holding the three which three out of four times they're going to they get the component and you get nothing if you don't try to match it if you don't play the two and you just play some random card you at least get a whisk out of it right Yep. so you get a whisk
1: they get the thing right and, a- and at worst you both play non-matches like say the three was in right. the two that got discarded they both don't match and you just cancel each other out so it's a wash right exactly. which is better than your opponent getting something and you not
0: right, right. There's no blocking, right? If the two and the three are not accounted for and you have the two and you can't account for the three, there's nothing you can do to stop your opponent from playing the three. You should assume they're going to play the three because they're statistically likely to have the three. There's nothing you can do about it. That's a problem. That's issue number one. Okay. Number two, this game presents itself as a bluffing game. (laughs) No bluffing. There's no bluffing in this game. This is actually addressed in the strategy section of the rules, and I put strategy in air quotes because I want to mention this. This is what he says, okay? Table talk is allowed. For example, a player may say whether they have played a matching card to the table without showing its face when in reality they have played a non-matching card. This is not strategy. So basically what he's saying, let's go back to our initial example. There's a one and a four out. The two and the three are not accounted for. I have neither the two or the three. So then I have to think, well, maybe my opponent just has the two and not the three. So I'll play a card down and be like, oh, this is the three leaf. You better not try to take this. I guess that's what he's saying. Like I'm table talking like, oh, this is the three leaf. You shouldn't even go for this.
1: But your opponent should already be assuming that you have the three leaf in that situation. Correct. Right. Either they have it, and then they should play it, and they're going to win. Right. Or they have the two, and it goes back to our previous example right. of they should never play it.
0: Because 70% of the time, you're going to have the three. As a matter of fact, if you even tried to do that, you'd probably shoot yourself in the foot <laughs> by talking too much, right? Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: it just doesn't make any
0: sense. No. No bluffing in this game. It's not a bluffing game. This is a logic and deduction puzzle that is solvable.
1: Yeah, to me, this game felt like Solitaire. Every once in a while, there's a decision that comes up that's like, well, it could be this or it could be that. In the same way that Solitaire has that. You have choices every once in a while in Solitaire of like, it could go either way. And, you know, this might lead me to the path of being able to win in Solitaire or it might not. Right, But ultimately, there is an optimal way to play Solitaire, and you're either going to win or you're going to lose based on the way the deck was shuffled. And this felt very much the same way to me.
0: Totally agree. All right. Issue number three. (laughs) This should be the last one. The whisk problem. This is a serious problem. So in this game, remember, you get a whisk for playing a non-matching card. So if somebody matches and gets a component, and you do not, if you don't try to match... Which you shouldn't unless you know you have a winner. You should never try to match unless you know you can. You'll get a whisk. If at any point in the game you have two whisks and your opponent doesn't have two of anything, like if they have a bowl and a leaf and you have two whisks, the game arc just totally dies because the person with the two whisks is then incentivized for the rest of the game to not match. Because any time the opponent matches, they get a whisk. Then they're one step closer. So now they have three whisks. Now, And that person only has two bowls now. And they need four. So now what is he going to do? Nothing. Because there's nothing he can do. I will continue to non-match. And as soon as you match again, I'll get my fourth whisk and the game is over.
1: That is terrible. (laughs) Terrible. Yeah, it just drags on in this kind of stalemate type situation. And for the player who's down in that situation, there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Yeah. You can attempt to go for it, but you're going to lose. Right. Or you just play defense.
0: Exactly. And that's what happened in some of our games. We just continued to play round after round, trying to prevent an inevitable outcome that we both knew was coming.
1: In most hands of five cards, on average, you're probably going to have about two matches. And so most of the cards you're playing are non-matches. Right. Which, first of all, in my opinion, is kind of uninteresting. Very uninteresting. It's like, well... The rest of my card plays, after I've played these two cards, don't matter at all, right? Because I'm just going to play them to attempt to block my opponent from getting whisks. Right. And so most of what you're going to be getting is whisks. Right. So it seemed like in most of the games that we played, this scenario of somebody getting to that point of having three whisks happened by the end of the first round. Yep. Every time. Yep. And so by round two, you're already in this stalemate situation. Yep. And then it just plays on until somebody, by attrition, wins.
0: Okay, so those are all of our grievances about matcha. And I I wanted to mention these up front because this morning, actually, (laughs) I learned that in the most recent reprint of matcha, they changed a couple of rules. But I thought it was worth going through our feelings on the first edition rules of matcha. For one, because the new rules don't change much and they don't improve the game. And two, a lot of these really positive reviews were written based upon these first edition rules. Okay? And we wanted to address these issues because a lot of people may either, one, only play the first edition, or two, I think these grievances that we have address the core issues with the game, which, like I said, haven't been fixed with the new rules. Yeah.
1: We did play the game with the updated rules because we wanted to, to give it a fair shot. For what it's worth, I would say that the updated rules improve the game in that they attempt to address some of the issues, but it does not fix the ultimate conclusion that we came right. to about the game.
0: Well, the only thing it fixes is the whisk problem that we just said. So in the new updated rules, you n- only need three of each component to win now. So three bowls or three leaves as opposed to four, but you still need four whisks. Correct. Correct to win via whisks they identified that (laughs) otherwise they wouldn't have changed it right because it's clearly a problem with the game
1: but But, i don't think there's a way to fix it i think they attempted to fix it but it doesn't it doesn't really solve the problem
0: sadly that doesn't fix the problem of being able to easily read the board and identify what's not accounted for and then plan the statistically best play every time to win the game The problem with this game ultimately is there's just not enough unknown information. More than two cards need to be removed from the game. If there was more uncertainty, there would be more room for bluffing. But on a 70% chance that your opponent is holding a winner, you should never take a chance. It's just a bad play, right? So while they may have fixed the whisk issue with these new rules, the game itself is still a solvable puzzle, which to be quite honest just isn't very fun. This was a hard one, folks. I I have to tell you, I've been very, very nervous about this review. And like I said, I I guess this review is coming across as a little bit more serious. And I I apologize for that if that's not interesting to listen to. We
1: want to hear opinions. Jump onto the guild. If you have thoughts about this game, about what makes this great, Like we want to hear them. Yeah. We, We could be missing something. We could be... I don't think so. Yeah, I, we, we, we played it pretty exhaustively. We did.
0: So, we we did but. our homework on this one, folks. I mean, literally, we played it face-up, open so many times, trying to dissect it, trying to understand it, and we just cu- coming back to the conclusion that, like Jason said earlier, and I like to use this phrase as well, you're not playing this game. This game is playing you. It gives you the illusion of choice, but you really don't have any choice.
1: Well, those are our thoughts on Matcha. <laughs>
0: Oh, man. Let's see what comes out of this one. Like I said, if you want to try this out for yourself, if you want to test it out, if you want to see if what we're saying is right or if you think there might be some holes in our logic, this game just got reprinted by Matigo, so it's available. And I will say one positive thing about it. It's a beautiful game.
1: Oh, for sure. The art is great.
0: Yeah. The production is great. The card quality is through the roof.
1: Each of the utensils is a little wooden shape. (laughs) Yeah. I will say it really annoyed me that the bowls are pointed on the bottom maybe that's the way actual matcha bowls are i don't know much about the the history but it's impossible to set the stand the bowls up straight yeah 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 like, <laughs> unless you flip them over yeah yeah
0: on, on their other side yeah so give it a try get on our guild let us know why you're wrong if you disagree i would love that i i would love to sit down and and, and debate with somebody about this game for sure same all right that's our final thoughts on matcha The whole of Egypt is in an uproar. Kenetan, who has just acceded to the throne, wants to ban the old deity Ammon from the temples of the land. Aten is to be worshiped as the new god. But the priests of the land are not willing to give up their temples without resistance, so the four largest temples are fiercely disputed. The players are adversaries and fight out this battle of the gods between them. Both have the same starting position but who will be able to make better use of his abilities and help his god to victory? Nice. All right. Atten, published in 2005 by Queen Games. At the time of this recording, its BGG ranking is 5,218.
2: Whoa, whoa, whoa. Nope, Chris is wrong here. The actual ranking of this game is 1,162. Geez, I mean, I leave for one week, and this is what happens? All right, continue. Designer of this game,
0: Thorsten Gimler. Also the designer of No Thanks. Oh, wow. Yeah, that surprised me. The reverse auction game, which is Okay. fine he also designed odin's ravens which is a two-player racing game i heard about this game on the heavy cardboard podcast they seem to be coming up a lot recently we've been talking about them a lot they did a two-player episode i think and they did talk about this game as one of their reviews so that's how i heard about it a brief rules summary atten is a two-player game of clever card play and tug of war area control i think before i get into the details of the rules it's important to understand how you win this game because it is a little bit unique in this game you can win in one of four ways you can either win on points so if you are the first player to hit 40 points before your opponent you'll win the game outright immediately alternatively you can achieve victory through certain majorities on the board So let me briefly explain how the board is set up so that you can understand how these victory conditions work. On the board, there are four temples, and they're divided into 16 squares. Each of these temples scores a little bit differently that I'll get into later. But basically, if you gain presence on these temples by placing discs on there, you can get uh, certain benefits from the temple, but you can also get certain benefits from the spaces. And in each of these temples... Some of the the squares are colored green, and some of the squares are colored yellow in each of the four different temples. If you are ever able to get your colored markers on all of the green spaces or all of the yellow spaces, and your opponent doesn't have any presence on that color in all of the temples, you will win that way as well. In addition, You can also win by having a total presence in one temple. So in other words, all 16 squares are occupied by your discs and your opponent has no discs in that temple whatsoever. You can win that way as well, right away. So multiple paths to victory. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Okay. That's how you can win the game. So how do you play the game? It's very simple. Each player has a deck of cards numbered one to four. There are 24 cards, I believe in this deck. Each player is going to shuffle that deck and then each round they're going to draw four cards and that's going to be their hand. Then both of you at the same time are going to assign those cards face down to four different action spaces. Once those cards are assigned, you will then simultaneously reveal and then things will happen. You'll execute from left to right, one through four. So let's go over what each space does. So in the first space... This space is just for points. Let's say that I assign a three to this space and Jason assigns the one. The way this works is you'll get a number of points equal to the difference between your cards times two. So three minus one in this example is two times two, so I would get four points. The second, the third, and the fourth spaces kind of go together. So the second space will allow you to remove discs from the temples on the board. The way that works is, is you take the value of your card minus two, and that's how many of your opponent's discs you can remove, and place them into something called the Kingdom of the Dead. The fourth slot will allow you to add discs to the temple. So if you played a four there, you could put four discs into the temples anywhere you want. You can divide it up however you want. The trick is, is that the third space, where you assign that third card, tells you which temples are eligible to be placed in each temple has a number assigned to it so if i play a three there i could take away or add discs to temples one two or three but not temple four the game will go on like this with us trying to take space that is the most advantageous for us and there are several reasons why you might take space in an area other than victory conditions each temple scores a little bit differently for example in one temple Whoever has the majority there will score a number of points equal to the difference between the number of discs you have between your opponents. Lastly, the thing that triggers a scoring is once the uh, Kingdom of the Dead gets filled with discs. And remember, that happens when discs gets pulled off. That will trigger a scoring. Yep. And then, like I said, once one of those victory conditions is met, the game will end. Okay? So that's generally how you play Atten. So... You know how I love multiple paths to victory, Jason. <laughs> oh, we know. <laughs> and this has it, right? This is Or does it. Or or does it, right? Multiple ways that you can win this game. So how do you feel like this game implemented that? Do you think that it did a good job?
1: I do. I learned this the hard way the first couple times we played this game. I started going after those conditions. I think that's the wrong approach to this game. I don't think that you can start. Which, which the game one specifically? I think it's worth mentioning. Yeah, so I went after, I think, the yellow spaces, trying to get all the yellow spaces. And it definitely adds tension. It accomplishes what it's meant to accomplish, which is that tension of, oh man, yeah, I might be getting close to 40 points, but my opponent might grab the last space that they need to get the insta-win, right? Right. I think I fell into the trap of thinking, oh, well, I can make that my strategy, and I can go after that and try to win that way. Right. (laughs) And I think you're setting yourself up for failure if you try to do that, which I don't think is a con to the game. I think that's the way that the game is meant to be played. But playing it the first few times, I learned that the hard way. In all the plays that we did of this game, we never saw anybody win using one of those conditions, Mm-mm. I don't believe. I think it's possible under the right circumstances. But it seems like it's far more likely that someone is going to win the game by getting to 40 points. I agree with that. Which then begs the question of, well, is it even worth it trying to go for those conditions if you're just hampering yourself From potentially being able to get enough points, scoring points, right? So that that was a bit of a concern to me.
0: Okay, so I generally agree with you. I disagree a little bit on some minor points. So of the four victory conditions, obviously most games are going to be won by the forty points. We don't dispute that. I do think that the victory condition of getting all of your discs in one space of a temple is doable especially the level four temple because it can be difficult to unseat somebody if they get dug in there
1: right but let me explain the level four temple you have to play a level four card to the third space which controls which temples you can access with your discs and those are hard to come by and you usually want to spend it to do something else like placing discs so if you manage to get a large presence in that fourth temple it's hard to unseat that person however your opponent is bound to be able to play in there at some point. And if they put discs in there, then now to claim all of the spaces in that temple, not only do you have to fill the rest of it, but you have to spend actions getting your opponent's discs out of there as well to be able to then place your own in. It's a two-step process, right?
0: which is the problem I have with this game. Like I said, I think it's easier to do it having all the same discs in one temple because it requires you... To play that four card to actually access the fourth temple to affect that yep. that can be challenging. I'll be honest with you. There was one game we played. You made me very nervous that you might win that game that way. You didn't, but it's good that I was scared of it. Right?
1: I don't think I won any of our games. So. Well, but but yeah, still, at least, at least I made you nervous. <laughs> you did. I was <laughs> worried about counts. it.
0: I will tell you one thing. I wasn't worried about though is the green and the yellow victory conditions. I don't see how it is possible to win this way. I, I just don't see it. Not only do I think it's nearly impossible, I wasn't even worried about it. And you were trying to do it one game. I saw you going for yellow. I could clearly see that was what you were trying to do. And it was just so easy for me to prevent you from doing that. Because yep. on the lower level temples, you can always remove somebody from a one. right? Because you're always going to play at least a one.
1: Or you just dump your own discs into that color. Right. right. Which and makes then, it doubly hard for me to come back.
0: Exactly. It's just too hard. That was so deflating for me that two of those four victory conditions can be countered so easily. So, this game reminded me a little bit of another game. Have you played Seven Wonders Duel, Jason? I haven't. Okay. So, Seven Wonders Duel has multiple paths to victory, too. There's a military and a science victory, which are very hard to do, and they're rarely won that way, which I think should be. I don't think that's a problem, but they are possible. Like I said, I don't think winning with green and yellow in this game is even possible. But even with the Seven Wonders Duel, going down those tracks gives you some sort of advantage. It'll get you points in other ways, or it'll give you some benefit. In this game, going for green and yellow and not winning that game gives you no benefit. It just hurts you. (laughs) Right. Because you're not getting on those black spaces. You're not getting on those plus one and those plus two point spaces. Instead, you're wasting your time placing on green and yellow, which does nothing for you.
1: Right. Yeah, totally agree. I will say that I did really enjoy the tension that comes with the card play. I mm. think that's the the best part of this game to me. Yeah. You know, the first space is just put your best card there that you can manage based on what you want to do elsewhere. But that decision of, well, I really need to get to at least the third temple, and so I have to play at least a three to the third space, but then I won't have enough to actually place enough discs to make it worth it. I can't put all the discs I want in, yeah, yeah. Or, and you know, we didn't mention this before, I don't think, but if you play a two to the second space, which is the remove disc space, then it's minus two, so that basically means you get nothing for that space. And if you play a one there, you get minus one, which means you have to take one of your own discs off. So that can be especially punishing.
0: But... You most likely get to go first. Right.
1: right? So the other thing I was going to mention is that number two space also determines turn order. And I think turn order is huge in this game. Yep. Because being able to remove first and then place first can swing the balance significantly. And I thought that that card play of trying to figure out, okay, well, you know, I got a four... And two ones and a two. What do I do with it? It was fascinating to me. Yeah,
0: It's a new puzzle every time. And I'm really glad that you mentioned the one space. In this game, I think about the one slot and the two through four slot is like two different things, right? That one spot is interesting. Like in our first game, you were going real heavily on that one spot. You were scoring so many points. I think in our first game, you were ahead by 15 or 20 or something. It was making me super nervous. Yeah,
1: didn't matter in the end.
0: Well, and and I think that that's a strength of the game, though, is that even though you were scoring a ton of points on that, I was able to make it up through the play of area control and dominance on the board and the point scoring benefits you get from dominating in those temples. That made me feel better because it would have been deflating too just to know you can just hammer the one spot and win yeah. that way. But I don't think that that's to say that spot doesn't have value. Because you can definitely pick up meaningful points there, especially if you're close to the finish line.
1: Yeah, it becomes a major threat towards the end of the game. It does.
0: If your opponent can limp across the line in the lead by you just giving them those points in the one, then you have to play very defensively there.
1: Yeah, I think in one of our games, I was down by 10 or so, but you were within 5 of getting to 40. and So every turn, I had to think really hard about playing a 3 or a 4 to that first space to prevent you from just getting enough points right. just off of that first exactly. space to, to win the game. Right?
0: And then it sets up some really fun mind games, too, because I know that you know that.
1: <laughs> right. So then
0: maybe I'll just play a one there and hmm, load up Maybe the board. there's actually bluffing in <laughs> this <laughs> game. Actual bluffing that works, right? <laughs> That's actually legitimate, you know? Then I can fake you out and play my fours on the board and try to score points if I see another scoring coming. I really enjoyed that part of it quite a bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the other thing I I will mention um, that kind of ties in with the tension that comes along with that card play is also the number of spaces on the board that you can score points from. Mm -hmm. I think taking away the idea that some of the instant win conditions are maybe less effective... The core of the game really boils down to scoring the most points, getting to that 40. And you do that in a variety of ways, right? There's black spaces, and if you have the majority on the black spaces across all four temples, you get eight points. Right. Each temple scores in a unique way for majorities. There are also one blue space in each temple, and those spaces are worth, I I think it's three points each. Yep. But only if you have the majority in the fourth temple. Yep. So much to think about. Yeah. And so every placement matters you're trying to think about, okay, well, do I try to go after black and gain that majority? Or do I try to negate my opponent's majority in that area? And you always feel stretched Then There's do. always, there's never enough placements and there's always too many of your opponent's placements. Yep. Yep. So, <laughs> so many
0: things to think about. I love that. It feels like a tug of war. You're taking this, I'm giving you that, I'm taking this from you, you're giving me that. And you're just trying to logic out in your brain. Am I coming out ahead in this exchange? If I give him this ground and I take this ground, is it better for me? There's so many interesting thoughts. Like the third temple, for example. The way it works is if you have the majority there, you score one point for every disc in that temple.
1: Yeah, I think you hammered me pretty hard in one of our games. I did hit that. that
0: one pretty hard. You can score a lot of points there, but it's interesting. If I go too heavy there, what am I neglecting elsewhere? Exactly. Right? I'm giving you something somewhere else. And then I have to calculate is what I'm getting from that better than what i'm giving you elsewhere exactly and it's a tough it's a tough puzzle for sure
1: yeah so to switch over to things that maybe we didn't find as amazing about this game i think we mentioned the instant win conditions aside from that one of the one of the biggest things that stood out to me is that there is luck in the card draws for sure yeah and it's balanced in that your deck is balanced right you have the mm-hmm. same number of ones and twos and threes and fours in your deck and your opponent has the same as well but i think timing really matters in this game yeah because scoring rounds happen at very specific moments if you just happen to come out with a a really poor hand right before you know a scoring is yep. about to happen and your opponent can, has a blockbuster it can, hand yeah, it can destroy you yeah and there is a mitigation there's one minor mitigation for this yeah Every game you get one white token, right? That basically you can hand in your token and throw away your hand and just draw a completely new hand.
0: Which I love that they did that, by the way. Which is
1: great. Yes. However, I I think I find myself wishing that there was a little bit more control there. (laughs) Even if there was a space on the board where you could spend placements to go on this space and get your token back and be able to reuse it or have some sort of other ability that you can pay for, but gives you more flexibility to be able to fight that. Yeah. I think that would have been a really great addition to this game that would have felt like you have a little bit more control over that. I think that was one thing I found myself wishing for as I was playing this. Yeah.
0: You can definitely get screwed on the card draws, no doubt. I I do love that you have that mulligan, but it can be tough at an inopportune moment. And like you said, sometimes you can kind of see it coming. (laughs) Yeah. You know, sometimes I'm like drawing a lot of threes and a fours and I'm like, oh boy. It's great at the moment, and you need to make the most of it.
1: My next couple of rounds are going to be trash.
0: Yep. And you're like, oh boy, I'm just going to have to try to like salvage what I know is coming, right? And, you know, maybe that's not bad. You know, you're just trying to make the most of it. Although I do wonder, maybe, if somebody were just able to draw a nice distribution every time, Yep. would they do better than somebody that has these extreme highs and extreme lows in their hands? Probably. Yeah, but it it can be crushing at a bad moment. I want to mention one more thing, really quickly. I, I feel like I have to mention it. This game is not a looker, so they attempted to put this uh, game in a small box, which actually I appreciate because I hate it when publishers put really small games in big boxes to try to increase their shelf presence. I hate that because I don't have space for it, right? Yeah. So they tried to address that, but this is a puzzle board. Oh man, I hate puzzle boards.
1: The pieces warp and they yeah. don't fit together right.
0: It's literally just plain red and blue discs. The art is very classic stock Egyptian style artwork. It's not exciting on the table. So if that's something that's an obstacle for you, you should know about it because it doesn't look great. All right, let's go into uh, final thoughts. Jason, what do you think?
1: Yeah, so despite all of our misgivings about the instant win conditions in this Mm. game and some of the luck that's involved in the card play, I was just fascinated by this game. <laughs> I, f- I found that push pull and the tension that comes from trying to figure out how to play the cards that you draw as best as you can, well, and then having to balance your efforts across four different temples and five different ways to score points. I found that fascinating. I gave this game a five. Whoa! Okay. I thought it was great. I would love to see a reprint that maybe addresses some of the luck aspects of it. Yeah, but I I really enjoyed it.
0: That's awesome. Okay, yeah. All right, so for me, I enjoyed my plays of Atten as well. I really did think it was a good game. The card play, as we mentioned, is very fascinating. The tug-of-war tension is real in this game. You're constantly counting your majorities. You're constantly looking at your cards. Where can I get ahead? What can I afford to give up? What can I not afford to give up? Awesome gameplay there. As you all know, I love multiple paths to victory. It was a bit deflating to me to get the sense that the green and yellow majority in the temples just seemed to be impossible. Again, I'm just basing this on a handful of plays, so maybe I'm wrong. I'm sure this was play tested many times, but I just don't see how you can do it. It just seemed so hard. And so for me, that's a little upsetting. So that knocked this one down a step for me. If that was more possible, this game would be a 5 for me. But I bumped it a bit because of that. So I gave this one a 4. Maybe if it could be reworked where that's a little bit more easier to obtain. I would like it a little bit more. But having said that, I think 4 is a good game for us. I'm keeping this game. I think it's good. I enjoy playing it.
1: Yep. Cool. So where can we find it?
0: Yeah. This game is pretty available on BGG. There are 23 listings as of the time of this recording. And for pretty cheap, $10. Most of them. That's wow. a steal for this game. If you like two-player games... Just try this one out. I mean, it really is pretty good. Especially if you like Seven Wonders Duel. You should... I mean, they're different, and this is not a drafting, but it gave me similar feelings. So I would suggest checking it out.
1: Cool. All right.
0: That's our final thoughts on Atten.
1: And that's our take on some of the lesser-known two-player games that we have available to us. As always, if any of these games sound like they are of interest to you, we'd encourage you to check them out and we definitely encourage you guys to engage with us online. Remember that good reviews on your podcast platform of choice go a long way towards helping us get the word out on our podcast and on all these games yep. that we think are amazing. So that's what we're all about. And I'm your host, Jason. This is Chris.
2: Thanks for listening. This episode of Hidden Gems number six was recorded in Raleigh, North Carolina on April 18, 2021. Join us in two weeks when we talk about a trio of games from one of the all-time greats in board game design, Stefan Dora. Hidden Gems is produced and edited by Chris Alley, Cameron Lockie, and Jason Yonjloff. Our show's logo was illustrated by designer and artist, Caitlin Nieto. Check out her work on Instagram at it's Caitlin Nieto. We would love to hear from you. Feel free to join the discussion on our many social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook at Hidden Gems Board Game Podcast, Instagram at HiddenGems.podcast, and Twitter at Hidden Gems Board. Disagree with one of our reviews? Have something you want to say about one of the games we discussed today? You can also make your voice heard on our Board Game Geek Guild at BoardGameGeek.com. Once again, thank you for joining us on Hidden Gems. And until next time, fellow gem seekers, enjoy your games and enjoy your search. Ha! You thought you could do an episode without me.
0: Hidden Gems, Episode 6. T for 2.
1: <laughs> Stupid dog. dumb dog.
0: <laughs> Let me put him inside. Good grief when we first start.
1: <laughs> That's gonna be an outtake. <laughs>